Welcome to Politics in Question, a show where we look at how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor at Marquette University. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. So today we're really fortunate to welcome a wonderful guest, Megan Ming Francis. Megan is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington, and she's been a visiting associate professor at Harvard's Kennedy School for the past year. She's the author of the book, Civil Rights and the Making of the Modern American State, which is a book that I teach frequently in multiple classes. Uh, she's also the author of numerous scholarly articles and public-facing pieces about race, American political development. Most recently, she has a monkey cage piece about the role of the white press in creating perceptions of black protest. Welcome, Megan. Thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. So our question today is a really big one um, about, about reform versus fundamental change and how we go about finding big change in American politics. So I guess we're going to proceed with the question in terms of thinking about what what in American politics needs to really shift at the foundations? What needs to be gutted or um, subject to some kind of revolution? Uh, or what can be reformed, tweaked, and changed in a more superficial, superficial way? So we're going to go around and kind of collect our initial reactions to that question before we talk to Megan about her work and delve into a deeper conversation. Megan, do you want to start us off? I'll start off with some quick initial thoughts. Um, I think the protests over the past two, three weeks have shown quite clearly, as well as the history of Black political movements, that for me, at least in terms of institutions that need to be radically, like, not just kind of reformed or tweaked at the edges, but like radically transformed, I think it's clear that the criminal punishment system is like top of mind, um, and likely at the top of the list. Um, I think there are other institutions that perhaps we might tweak a, a bit. Um, but for me, at least, I think I just want to leave it there, and, but I definitely want to come back and talk a bit more about that. But it's definitely the criminal punishment system for me. Lee? Yeah, so I, I've been thinking a lot about history uh, over the last week or so and, and the way in which things kind of change radically when they change. And that, you know, we, we often think of change as sort of this incremental process, but I think when we... Think from the broad scope of history, there are these kind of big movements and big moments in you know, which a bunch of assumptions uh, that had held for, for a long period of time uh, kind of just get questioned fundamentally. And, and it creates these moments of, of tremendous uncertainty and opportunity. And you know, I, I kind of feel like more and more we're in one of those moments in which a lot of folks are questioning the way that things have been done. A lot of people are opening up their eyes to a bunch of uh, injustices and, and unfairnesses that you know, I think we, we sort of acknowledge and tolerated but didn't really think about. And I, I think these moments create kind of tremendous opportunity. And you know, I, I think it's, it's scary, it's exciting, uh, but I think it's important to have a view of of history in which you know thing society is a is a complex a complex system really and the system can get stuck in a, a sort of suboptimal equilibrium for a while but at a certain point it becomes unsustainable and you know I think it's really important to have a and I'll, I'll quote Megan here and I want to ask her more about this a bold utopian vision uh, because I, I think you know, clearly the vision that we have is is flawed and I think a lot of folks recognize that and you know I think that you know I think broadly in terms of punctuated equilibrium that there are these moments in you know which the the ground really shifts and you know I, I want to think about how how, how you you kind of take advantage of those opportunities to to build something new. James what do you think? Well I first want to thank Megan for uh, coming on the show today. Uh, I think her work is is really really interesting. It's it's very very timely and I want to encourage all of our listeners to to check it out if they haven't done so already. And and I agree with Lee and and also with with you Julia, but I think in thinking about this issue and reflecting on on big large scale change and revolutions that type of thing, one thing that strikes me is that 
that change often happens or really only happens when the current order is is delegitimized and it loses all of its its authority and whether that be on a policy question or uh, kind of society writ large and i and i think with a lot of what's happening now uh, the american people are starting to look at this uh, this question um in a in a in a new way and i think that that is is what Lee said, I think it's it's starting to undermine the authority of the status quo. And I think that's a good thing because it opens up a lot of potential for change. Um, one of the things that concerns me is the direction in which we go from here. And and the reason I say that is that I, I, I am very optimistic about this moment in our politics and in our history, but I'm I worry about how we think about politics right now, how we approach politics and in our ability to to capitalize on that opportunity and to and to have change for the good um you know one of the themes that i have on this podcast is this uh, means ends view of politics a production oriented view of politics um one that really focuses on rulership rather than freedom and in politics and and the ability to participate in in politics as and in american society as an individual and I think that we need to acknowledge the the virtues that are diversity and disagreement and how together it allows us to, to see reality in the round. And I think that learning how to communicate across our differences is absolutely vital. And I think that the way in which we think about politics right now in terms of means and ends, um, in terms of production, I think that we... It, it it undermines our ability or it makes it harder, I should say, for us to communicate across those differences because we lose sight of the individual and we begin to see only groups, only people, uh, only faceless cogs in, in, in machines. And and that is not a way to to recognize uh, the beautiful diversity of, of this of this nation. Um, and I think that we need to really grapple with that in order to ensure that wherever we go from here, uh, we're heading in, in, in the right direction. So I'll jump in here and state my uh, my my priors. I I approach this as a pretty deep dilemma, and in part I've been really influenced by you know by your work, Megan, and by other by other scholars working in this arena of thinking about the the problems of. I'm going to kind of paraphrase another um, scholar, Laurel Eckhouse, on this panel a couple weeks ago about policing that was really great and we'll put in our, our show notes. Um, it was convened by Hakeem Jefferson at Stanford. So on that panel, Laurel talked about the legitimacy of the American state. A number of the panelists, including you, Megan, talked about the, the way in which racism is baked into a lot of institutional practices and you know specifically policing, but a lot of other aspects of the system as well. And the, the system was really not meant to serve Black people and not meant to serve, I mean, really not meant to serve a lot of people. That, that question is maybe most pressing and acute at the moment. So my, my intellectual brain knows that things must change and that they, that they probably need to change at really deep levels and that a lot of really smart people are saying that reform is not enough in many of these institutional contexts. But I have this other part of my experience that I bring to this question, and this is maybe a little bit uncharacteristically personal for how I approach things on the show, but as we're talking about identity and positions, you know, I'm an Iranian American. And so my whole life, I've been, I've been told stories about the Iranian revolution, which my parents were, um, were in Iran for and left, um, sort of as it was unfolding. And the stories about, you know, not knowing who was in charge, the stories about what happens when you really take the idea of it, the government being rotten and illegitimate. And, it, you know, the royal Iranian government was, um, was rotten, but what's replaced it is also pretty rotten. And the kind of, when you start to really fundamentally question the stability of something, that becomes also very scary. And so I have this, this dilemma here. And while I've been really vocal in my, my rejection of some of the norms discourse, in American politics over the last couple of years, I also recognize the ways in which stability is is really critical for um, you know for having a democracy. So I think this is a really it's a really challenging dilemma. And so I acknowledge that things have to change. And I think also speaking to 
speaking to some of the work that, that you've done, how we think about those, about those movements, about movement building, about coalition building, about change, those, those details are really critical to change being positive and not just, not just empowering, um, you know, more, more of the same or worse. So, I mean, in terms of what you're, what you're touching on, Julia, is this tension um, between, in terms of kind of order and stability um, on the one hand, um, and, and the importance of that in a political system, but also, obviously, I think what, what protesters right now are really calling for in terms of, like, and how, like, or at least the benefits of instability, right, um, and how people on the outside and on the margins can actually change um, in terms of what is the standard in politics. I mean, for me, in terms of thinking about what is going on right now around the protest, um, uh, Black Lives Matter protest that have really, I think, touched on not just the problems around policing and the criminal punishment system in this country, but have really touched on larger, I think, pressing um, issues around systemic racism that touches so many institutions in American society. And I think, you know, for me at least, in terms of trying to understand what happens and what comes next, um, I spent a lot of time in my, my earlier work focuses on the NAACP's campaign against racial violence in the first quarter of the 20th century. Um, and so I write, I documented my book, their work around public opinion, legislative, um, in terms of Congress trying to pass an anti-lynching bill, the executive branch working with Woodrow Wilson and Warren Harding. Um, and then um, this major Supreme Court case in 1923. Um, and I, I used to present this, right, to like audiences, to a lot of political scientists. Um, and the question that I always got, and this is, I'm now thinking about, this is like 2010 till about 2014, right? So this is before kind of predated Black Lives Matter protests in this country. The question that I always got is why? Like why did the NAACP continue to try to work with inside the political system? Why did they believe that they could achieve this type of change? What were they actually going to, like what was their purpose in this? Um, and then I, I'm gonna try to connect this with something that Lee mentioned around this utopian vision. And I spent a lot of time, a lot of time puzzling. I, I actually never had a good answer to that question about like why in terms of this early 20th century, way before the heyday of the civil rights movement in this country, why did the NAACP try to get the attention of segregationist Woodrow Wilson, right? Why did they try to pass an anti-lynching bill in 1922? It still won't pass in 2020, right? So like, why is the NAACP working on these things then? And it really is, is that, I, I mean, perhaps not all, but a lot of Black people in this country have always, in terms of, had a different vision of what is possible, a different vision of what democracy is in this country. Um, and so part of the reason why the end of my book focuses on utopian visions for the future um, is because it's really important to think about fighting for a political future that we cannot yet see and that we have not yet experienced. Um, and that always has been kind of, that always has been part of the black freedom struggle in this country. Right. Um, and so part of, I mean, oftentimes I think about kind of the 60s movement and what it and how and they're fighting for civil rights and how in 2020 we have a kind of conception of what civil rights is today. But in the earlier period, in the early 20th century, there was no there's no civil rights written down in, um, in the NAACP archives. Right. Like, how do you fight for civil rights before the government has actually in a substantive way actually protected black rights? before. I think, and, and I think it's also important to say that to this question you raised, I mean, this important point um, you raised, Julia, which is the kind of stability is critical for having a democracy. Um, I think a lot of Black people then, and even now, would say that the democracy has never included Black people, right? So stability for who, um, I think is always really important to think about. But yeah, in terms of right now, um, and, and to think about how we fight for a different type of future, to me, that's been one of the most exciting aspects about the present moment, um, is that so many, what we're seeing as kind of radical fringe dreams of like activists who've been fighting for decades around a different conception of care, accountability, and transparency, a different way that government and people respond to the concerns of the most needy citizens. Like people have been working on this right for so long. And then finally, Finally, like in this moment over the last two weeks, people are like, huh, 
maybe we maybe we don't need to fund police at the level that we do, right? Maybe we should maybe we should spend some resources and reinvest in different types of community services. And that comes from a type of kind of radical utopian vision of something else is possible that yet we don't actually have. So I mean, I don't have like the answers for this right now, um, but I'm really excited about what has been seen fringe, um, at least I feel like in mainstream American politics, has at least for a moment, and I hope it's not just a moment, um, but for at least over the last two, three weeks, has made its way into the center of how people are thinking about the, the responsibility of government to citizens. I like this. I want to throw in a follow-up and then I'm going to hand it over to me to, um, to talk about uh, your recent piece on uh, funding and the NAACP, which is really, oh yeah, really fascinating. Um, I so here I, I like this vision much more, and I really like this uh, this notion of, of having this kind of imagination of something better in the way that that the way that that plays out both historically and now, and that's that's much better, I think, than than um, how I often my default way of, of thinking about um, about politics, but. I did want to ask, this is like really specific, and I know this is probably not in any of our areas of, of distinct expertise, but this is how I got started thinking on this, this systemic question, which is like one of the, one of the things I keep hearing is defunding the police and then moving some of the money over to some kind of social work system. And like, this sounds lovely, but then there's this deep critique of like, oh, you know, social work, and this is, this is very apparent to me, right, that social work also has racist origins, and is deeply problematic. Um, and I wonder, maybe, maybe one way to pose this question is sort of pragmatically, right, which is like one way to sell this, this notion of defunding the police is to talk about replacing that funding, um, or moving that funding over to, to things like social work that sound really good and benign and innocuous to a lot of people in, in the targeted coalition, um, thinking again about it, like building a, a very broad coalition to enact change. Um, but then it turns out that like that kind of reform doesn't actually, doesn't actually get at the problem. Like the rot is, is so deep and it is so many of our social systems. So I've just been thinking about that. And I, we started with utopian visions and I brought it into, you know, dark, <laughs> the negative places again but um that's that's sort of been on my mind yes absolutely i'm over here yes um dorothy roberts has a, actually a, there's a really great article that i think came out yesterday in the chronicle of social change which i'm happy to send to you to link in your show notes um but she has written um and spent a career writing about one abolition on the one hand as well as how the child welfare system disproportionately harms black children, right? And so she has an article, the article is called Abolishing Policing Also Means Abolishing fam Family Regulation. And what you're talking about though, Julia, in your comments here is an important pushback and a, and a caution, right? That like, it's not just that policing has problems around systemic racism. It's not just that the criminal punishment system has problems around systemic racism. It's that so many institutions that the rot is deep. Right, and that it impacts and it touches so many institutions. So saying that, like, we're gonna defund policing, we're gonna reinvest in social welfare or family services, doesn't at all like cure for the problems around systemic racism. Right, that we also need to address these different, the kind of the, the larger web of institutions that are also touched by systemic racism. Yes, absolutely. I think that in terms of, I think for me, at least when I talk about um, reinvesting, some of it is around social services, but I do think that we have to be mindful, not just of policing, but of the different agencies um, that we have in place. But the thing for me has been really encouraging is in some cities, uh, I think Chicago is a standout example. Um, and in many big cities across the country, there are already different organizations in place made up of community groups some of which have actually formed formal and some informal partnerships with police actually already um, about what to do and to be called in when let's say they are called to take care of and deal with somebody who's homeless or somebody who's mentally ill. And so I think in terms of, it might be interesting to think about not necessarily replacing, but perhaps replacing some of these agencies that, that are in terms of that there is rot 
um, and working and thinking about partnering and or scaling some of these different types of community organizations that have been doing this work for a long time and or reforming some of these different types of, let's say, housing and or community or social service type delivery organizations, I mean, services um, through work with community organizations. I'm, I'm, I'll stop there, but I will say that I think that that question that you raise and that pushback is so important, especially as we move forward. And seemingly, I saw something in Politico today where they're like, I think it's like 60% of Americans, which is extraordinary, <laughs> now believe in like that policing needs major transformative reforms, which is, I, I, I did not think that that would happen at this point in my lifetime. Right. Yeah. yeah that is amazing. Go, go ahead, Link. Yeah, I actually want to save the uh, philanthropy and funding question for a little later because I want to stick on this question of the uh, bold utopian vision. And, uh, and, and I, I want to situate that in this conversation that we're having about, uh, quote, defund the police, uh, which I think stands for, for something much larger. But I, I feel like there is this tension on, on the left that there are some folks, probably I would call them more establishment Democrats, who are saying, hold on, you know, let's, let's not get carried away here. We don't want to alienate people. We don't want to cost ourselves the election by by doing anything radical. So let's just, you know, let, let's just quiet that talk. You know, and then there are other folks who, who are saying, no, no, there's systemic rot. Um, so I, I, I guess the question is, you know, you, you talk a lot in your, your hit or you talk about the, the importance of that bold utopian vision in your deep history of the NAACP. So why is I really want to understand why this bold utopian vision is so important and what the folks on the, the, the side of the Democratic establishment who are saying, slow down, let's not get carried away, should know from that deeper history and should take away from that deeper history that they probably just don't know. Oh, that's so good. I love this question, Lee. <laughs> um, so I think it's so in okay, so I think it's so important because I don't think that we would have gotten to the 60s and I don't think that we would have gotten past the 60s without a bold utopian vision. I mean, I often go back to and this is I, I often don't actually cite Martin Luther King because I think that he is so miscited, especially <laughs> especially by conservatives. Um but one of the one of the one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s pieces that I actually always teach in my class um, is the letter from a Birmingham jail, right? And I think that there has been actually there has been some quotes from him in, in social media as of late. Um, but his he has a kind of a, a line and a pushback to the white clergy who is like, we 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 are sympathetic to your plight and to black people's struggle in America. We are we we obviously agree with you. But we don't think that this demonstrations in the street um, is is the best is the best way forward. Let's let's pull people back um, and let's work in the courts um, and through Congress um, and just wait, right? And 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 it will happen, and we will struggle, and we will work with you. And 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 King's response to that was his letter from a Birmingham jail which was that your way has almost always meant never to us, right? That, that, the, that in terms of for Black people to achieve rights in this country, it, it, the kind of the, the big advances have never come through these kind of slow incremental rights making in this country, that the people in power, which are white people in this country, have always liked to maintain that power. And one of the things that we know for sure over time, and not just in the United States, is that people who, who have power like to maintain their hold on power. And so he wrote this he wrote this letter from a Birmingham jail. And I think for me that continues to resonate um, in some of the way that the Democratic establishment is responding to protesters today. It's just wait, don't worry, we'll get Biden in. That's a whole nother podcast, y'all. We'll get Biden in and um, let's not rock the boat too much. Let's not scare, let's not scare away the disenchanted conservatives. Or the moderate, or the moderate Democrats, um, and we will work together for a type of reform. And right now, what you're seeing now in the streets is people are saying, "No, that's not good enough. We did what you told us to do. We wore dresses, we dressed up in suits, 
we, 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 we followed the game. We had a black president and, and what? Pol police violence did not decrease during Obama's time. That was the pinnacle era of reform, right? Under Obama, we have so many police reforms, so many DOJ investigations and still police kill black people. So right now, black people right now on the streets are like, this doesn't work, right? This incremental change, this weight doesn't work. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to tear the system up a little bit um, and force a different type of change. And you need to pay attention to us. So in terms of, I think, and it's clear at least, I think one of the things that's resonating at least from the protests is, I mean, I think that people are like, oh, wow, systemic racism is bigger than we thought, obviously. <laughs> right. But I mean, but they're definitely seeing it um, in the criminal punishment system. Now, in terms of do they, do they understand the depths of systemic racism and or want to do anything about it in other aspects of their life, the ones that actually touch their lives? That's not clear. But it is, I mean, I think it, it is, though, somewhat clear that the legitimacy of the state when it comes to law enforcement um, is, not, is, is seen by many to be illegitimate now. And in, in terms of other structures, education, housing, um, I think those are still standing to be, le to be legitimate for many people, but it's unclear. I think the last thing I'll say on this is that, you know, it, 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 it appears that the democratic uh, like establishment is paying attention. I'm not exactly sure about in terms of what is the long-term lesson that they might take away from what is going on right now and or from the history of Black protests. I can say, I, so I can't answer that question fully, but I do think that one of the lessons that the Democratic establishment today should be able to take away from the long history of Black struggle in this country and especially the early 20th century struggle around the protection of Black lives is to listen to Black people and that at the very least, at the very least, right, that they should fight for the protection of Black lives. This seems to be very easy. It doesn't even seem to be a partisan issue that we should all have ambitions for people to live, right? Um, and that if they don't, if, if we have data, right, that they are being killed at, at a disproportionate rate, then we should do something immediately to address it. And if the reforms that we've been doing for decades haven't worked, then we need to dispense with them. Excellent. Thank you. I'm going to let, uh, let James jump in here if you've got a question or thoughts on the, the topics we've raised so far. Yeah, no, I think this is a fascinating conversation. And it, there's so many different things that were jumping into my mind as I'm listening to it in a whole motley crew of characters. But I love this idea of a utopian vision because I think it highlights the way in which our, our, our understanding of politics today is very static. Um, you know, it, it's probably a, a odd name to bring into this conversation, but, but Heidegger had this concept of time that really distinguishes human beings, individual human beings um, and all their diversity from, from uh, you know, everything else on, in the world. And that is that we can imagine our own death. That means we can imagine our future. We can look to the future and we can have this understanding of our finite self. We can come back to the present, look to the past and see where we've been. And then we can then turn around and look back to the future and say, what are the steps that we need to take to get to that finite self? And that really, that, that sense of, um, of imagination, of possibility, I think is absolutely critical. And, and to a large degree, you know, a lot of Americans today, especially I think in our elected officials, um, have this more production oriented view that just looks at politics as this thing of making stuff and we're going to you know, control this factory and we're just going to stamp out our perfect like policy and it's going to be great. But it takes a lot of time and a lot of hard work and, and a lot of effort to, to get to the, the promised land, if you will. But I, I, I want the question I have to do, I have to ask, it deals with, um, with the tension in society. And I love uh, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham City Jail. He uh, in the letter, you know, he says why, you know, he's responding why direct action to these to this group of, uh, of clergy. And he says that, um, you know, we want negotiation and direct action, nonviolent direct action is a way to get there. 
And he says, you know, just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create attention in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and have truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need of having nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men to rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. And so, you know, and he goes on to say that the purpose of direct action is to create a situation so crisis packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. And I think that is so true. And, and the issues that we're dealing with and grappling with now cut to the very core of America. If we think about the 1619 project with the first African slaves in the English colonies arriving in mainland America, that's, you know, we can also look back to 1619 and see that the New World's first legislative assembly convened in Virginia the very same year. Those two events, I think, highlight this tension. And we need to acknowledge that contradiction. And I think we need to try to resolve it. And that is, I think we can, but it, it's really, really hard. And I, I guess my question is, what kind of changes in our institutions, Megan, do you think that we need to, to welcome Black Americans into them fully, into the field and the sphere of acceptable political conflict? But, you know, so that we can then grapple with these issues. Because one of the things I, I see, especially among conservatives, my fellow conservatives, is that when they see, you know, even if they're confronted with evidence that says, well, this person was not committing a crime, they were innocent, everything was fine. It was, it's almost like there's this tendency to dismiss it anyway and say, well, that in, in this unspoken acknowledgement of, well, that's kind of the price we must pay to be safe. And I think that is horrific because if it was a, a white American who this happened to, that's not the way that they would react. And I'm really struggling with this as I, as I work through this moment in our, in our nation's history and trying to think through how I understand things. And, and how do we, I think the only way we can confront that is to have this, uh, you know, this big debate. But, but to have that debate, we need to accept people who are different from white Americans into that sphere of acceptable political conflict so that we can then have it. And what do you think we need to do to have that happen? Oh, I'm over here clapping. <laughs> Sorry, to, I've just been sitting here thinking, and like I said, all this stuff's been swirling in my head as I've been listening to you, Julia, and Lee talking. And it's like, I want to just cut to the core of the issue and say, how do we, how do we blow up the system so that we can put it back together again and make it better? There's so much that's rich in what you just said. Um, I, I, I definitely kind of want to amplify one thing that I've been thinking a lot about your comments um, specifically. One of the things for me that's been really interesting in this moment has been the number of white colleagues and white friends who have been like, oh my gosh, Megan, this is so crazy. I can't believe it. And have just really had this reckoning. And for me, <laughs> as somebody who's been like focused on black death and black politics and black protest my entire career, I'm like, where have you been? Like, I, I, like, I, it's hard for me to believe that people just did not know. And I think part of it is actually what you said, which is that I think that there has been for a long time, this perhaps unspoken social contract with white America and law enforcement and black America and law enforcement, where it's that like the police, the law police do bad things, um, especially in terms of they often mistreat black people and sometimes we see that on the news but as long as that is not brought to our neighborhoods pretend i'm white i'm not right <laughs> as long as it's not brought to our neighborhoods and our communities and as long as you show up and be officer friendly and treat us with with respect right that like we will continue to support um and 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 prop up this narrative that the police are here for public safety and that is never, at least for all the black people I know, no matter what income group they are from, that has never been a narrative in black America, America, in black America about the police. And so for me, I think that what you, what you just said about like kind of turning the blind eye, I think that has been, that really has stood out about this moment for me. In terms of though, to your much larger question that I again cannot fully answer, I don't have the cure for this. I do know that part of part of the answer that what you all are seemingly doing with this podcast and what a lot of people I can tell from like, you know, 
social media and or reading are doing, which is educating themselves. I think part of the problem is how little people know. I think that once you know better, you do better, right? That's one of the things I think our parents tell us when, like when we're young. Um, and I think that for many, especially white Americans, to see and to really confront what is going on right now, in part because it is pandemic and everything is closed. So there is no trips, there is no work, there is no banquets, there is no recitals for the kids, right? That everybody's at home and they are forced to bear witness to this. And so I think one of the things that will help I think empathy is, a, is powerful. And I think that in terms of, so I think the public education piece is key. Uh, I think that's, I mean, that's obviously not it. It's not like, oh, I read, I read two books and I get it now. And I am in the space <laughs> to, to, to do something and to like actually make um, Black Lives Matter. Um, but I do think that that opens up space for people um, to think um, and maybe to act differently. In terms of what is needed that can bring about substantive change, I'm thinking now, if I move to, to political institutions, I think one of the most obvious, for me at least, is that this moment has also, has shown in so many ways, again, like I said previously, not just um, what is not working in terms of, of law enforcement, but what is not working in so many areas. And so, Tiangi Yamana Taylor had a really, I think, powerful and provocative New York Times op-ed out over the weekend in the Sunday Review called The End of Black Politics. And, the, and the, that was kind of the title. And the subtitle was Black Leaders Regularly Fail to Rise to the Challenges that Confront Young People. And, and for me, I thought it was a really powerful and an interesting op-ed. And it raises for me, I think, moving forward, um, kind of the failure of the type of 60s and 70s agreement um, and or at least belief, right, that if Black people could get into politics, right, become Black mayors, rise to elected office, then things would change for Black people. And, and, and I think you saw that to some extent, but one of the things that we are seeing in the current moment is the limits of that. And so one of the things that I, I'd like to see change is for us to kind of focus on a different set um, of Black leaders and so people who, again, have been doing work for a long time. In the article, uh, Kianda Yamada Taylor focuses on Black activists specifically and, and, and kind of points to them as leading the way um, in terms of possibilities and in terms of being leaders in their communities. So I think for me, in terms of what is actually needed is for, I think right now we've tended to go to black mayors, we've tended to go to Obama, but I think that we need to focus more and amplify the work of black leaders who are part of and leading community organizations and or who community, black community people see, people in the black community see as leaders. I think that would actually go a, a long way. I think in part because there's a deep satisfaction that the political establishment is actually attuned to the causes and to the needs of the Black community right now. And so there seems to be at least a disconnect. And I don't have right, the, right now the, the political science data to show y'all, um, but in terms of just everyday interactions with Black people, uh, they often feel it's kind of this disconnect between electoral politics and their everyday lived experiences. So again, James, I don't have, I don't have all the answers here, <laughs> but like, I definitely think that, again, part of the answer is political education. Um, as well as elevating, amplifying, and listening to a new group of perhaps Black leaders. Well, I, I appreciate that because, and I would just reiterate that thinking is about asking questions that don't always have answers or easy answers. Um, and that leads to more questions. And I think we need to start asking all these questions. So thank you. Just to jump in here as the host, and this isn't just to, to promote our general approach on the podcast, just to ask questions and then instead of answering them, generate new ones. But I do think that this is one of the things we're seeing in this moment is a shift in the terms of debate. So while we've been podcasting, I got a, um, an alert on my phone about a bill that the Senate GOP has put forward about police regulation. And it's probably not what, what most activists would want, but it does suggest that, that many political actors are now responding to, those, to these new terms of debate, right? And they may respond in a very wide range of ways, but I think that that kind of is, is part of it, right? Is changing the kinds of questions that people 
ask. And that comes up too in the way that we pose questions as, as several of, of you have alluded to about public safety. Like what happens if we ask the question in a totally different way? And it turns out that that does require many people in the political sphere, including people with, with a lot of power and maybe people with a different ideological agenda to respond and come up with a different answer. So I actually, I have a lot of things that I want to ask, but I want to hand it over to Lee just in case you want to get to what you had alluded to in the beginning of the podcast about, uh, about philanthropy, which does take us in somewhat of a different direction, but I think we can tie it all in if you want. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to tie it all in. Um, which is basically to ask this this question about movement building and, and movement sustainability, and you know I think it you know in, in a particular moment like we're going through now in which there's a ton of media attention and focus and a lot of people who who want to do something you know and public opinion shifting very quickly that's one thing but you know for for change to happen. Uh, you know, there really needs to be a sustained movement. And I think one of the challenges that all movements and all organizations have is maintaining resources and continuing to, uh, to uh, you know, draw on, on public opinion to shape debate. Uh, and that, you know, maintaining resources requires a dependence on philanthropy. Philanthropy comes from yeah, the the largesse of society comes from people who have a lot of power and have made a lot of money in society. And yeah, you, know, you you've done some work wrestling with the trade offs there in how do you build a long term movement that relies on the effectively the largesse of people who are who are powerful. And I wonder if you can kind of speak to the tensions. There, Megan, you know, particularly, uh, you know, both historically and, you know, for the for the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, also, if you could advise people how they should contribute, you know, if they want to make donations, where should those donations go in this moment? Oh, so let me first start off by saying movements need money. (laughs) They need money to actually survive. I taught a course at the Kennedy School this past spring 2020 called Philanthropy and Social Movements will the revolution be funded, question mark. And, and in part because I wanted to actually spend more time on this issue, on this question which you raised, Lee, about in terms of, to try to understand even more by looking at different movements over time, including the conservative legal movement, about the role of funders in the movement. And for me, it's, it's tough, in part because movements need funding. It is easy for somebody, a big individual donor, um, or a foundation to come in and exert control over the agenda and the strategies of a social movement. And you see this time and time again all across the civil rights movement. I think there's a, a not I think there are a number of really great actually books that focus on kind of the the this kind of the heyday and the main organizations in the civil rights movement, um, as well as Black Power and the role of like moving people um, off individuals and organizations off the streets and, in, and inside of courtrooms, right? That part of the reason that MALDEF is actually formed is because they are concerned about all the Chicano activism in the streets. And they're like, hey, whoa, hey, this is getting a little violent. Why don't we, why, we'll fund actually you to seek rights through courtrooms. So you have to get off the streets. So we see this happening all the time. I think right now, I mean, for me, it's really interesting, this moment of especially big philanthropy, because there has been so much critique over the last five years of big philanthropy and their role in guilt laundering and using their money, right? (laughs) Using giving and essentially giving to social justice and racial justice causes as a way to like feel better about the amount of wealth they have accumulated in a time of increasing wealth inequality, economic inequality in this country. So yeah, so it's been interesting watching movements um, in this time of critical philanthropy. I think right now we are in a time in which at least a lot of the big individual donors, as well as many foundations, are aware of the amount of power and privilege that they wield over social movements and especially the Black Lives Matter movement. And so what used to happen in in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and still happens today is, is a, it's something called restricted funding, right? And so funding for these purposes, specific purposes. Um, and now what we're seeing is more general operating support. And so then this is in terms of kind of 
a belief that you are actually trusting the organization, trusting the activists. And so you are just, instead of saying that I'm gonna give $1 million to Black Lives Matter to focus on education, you're just gonna give $1 million to Black Lives Matter and believing and trusting the leaders of that organization or of the movement can best decide what to do with those funds because they are most proximate to the issues and to the causes, right? So for me, at least in this moment, I think that I'm a little bit hopeful that there's more money, more funding that's focused on general operating support. It is always the case though, um, I know that there's been an outpouring of funds over the last two weeks, and I think that's that's good. It, it also raises a lot of, I think, complicated questions. Um, but before this moment, um, there has been a bit written on this point, which is that in terms of uh, Black-led and especially Black women-led organizations receive the least amount of funding by big, big philanthropy in this country. And it's not even just that, like, and specifically, like, Black women-led organizations. Now, I think that there's some actually really interesting studies that show for organizations that are focused on Black issues that are led by white men, they actually receive a good amount of funding. It's fascinating. Um, and it speaks to, I think, deeper issues around inequality and funding. But yeah, I mean, I, I love talking about philanthropy <laughs> and social movements in terms of the future. Uh, 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 with funding right now. Oh, oh, getting to one of your the other, the last smaller question I think you raised, which is in terms of like, for those who want to give in the present moment, how to do so. So I'm a big believer in giving to local organizations doing work, um, in part because I, I tend to think that those organizations oftentimes receive the least amount of funding. Um, it goes directly, you know where, you know very clearly where it's going. And oftentimes, a lot of the bureaucracy that kind of when you give to national organizations is not necessarily in place when you give to local organizations. Um, so for those who are looking and want to do something to give, I'm not saying don't give to Black Lives Matter. I think it's an, an, a, an excellent organization and a movement, but I really would encourage people to give to local organizations and especially in this moment to give to Black women-led organizations. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, this is really, I feel like I could do a whole other podcast on this, this philanthropy, social movements. I teach a lot of students who are, who pursue careers in the nonprofit world. So like, I have so many questions. Um, but I, I want to actually, in the interest of, of respecting everybody's time, we're, we're coming up on an hour. Um, so I, I want to hand it to James, if you have one more question, and then I'm going to bring us home. Well, for the first time in my life, I think I'm going to, I would defer to to someone else, um, specifically Megan. I mean, I, I, just to see if there's anything else that she would like to share with our listeners, with us, any questions that she may have or any recommendations on, on things that we can be doing and, and reading. And I know we've been talking about a lot of this already, and we'll certainly put all of the stuff that's uh, already been mentioned in the show notes for our listeners. But yeah, I would, I would actually uh, turn it back over to you. Yeah, I think that's actually a perfect way for us to um, for us to, to conclude is for is really to hand it back to Megan if you have anything else you, you think our listeners should know or should be looking at or any questions we didn't bring up that um, you think uh, you want to answer. <laughs> that I'm not sure. I feel like I've been talking for two weeks um, <laughs> um, about these issues. Um, I mean, maybe like kind of a, a comment and feel, please feel free for anybody to like ask me to elaborate on anything more that I said or if there's anything else. I've been thinking at least yesterday a lot about where do we go from here and next steps and what they might look like. For me, it seems I've received kind of these questions about like, is this, is this all going to go away? Like next week, are we going to wake up and like everybody's going to forget about these protests or like a lot of people are going to forget about these protests. And my sense is, is no, I, I think that there's, I've been trying to put my, my finger on and I can't, but there's something different this time. I feel like, um, you know, Black Lives Matter's protests in terms of um, have been going on since 2014, but there is beyond people who are protesting in the streets, beyond being like more diverse than it's ever been before. I think that there is something different. I, I you know, the protests in the streets will, will, will go away at some point, but in terms of, I feel like this push and this concern about the levels of systemic racism and how it's entrenched in so many institutions in this country, 
I don't feel like will go away. I think moving, of course, more towards November, I think we'll see Biden have to address this in ways that he didn't anticipate having to address issues about race and policing, perhaps maybe even Trump. Um, I see things happening at the local uh, kind of rural town and big city level around political reforms for policing and other types of reforms that touch on issues around racial injustice. Um, I think that's exciting. My sense is, is that these protests will, at least in terms of if we look back to the NAACP's campaign against racial violence in the first quarter of the 20th century, that they will move into formal political institutions. And I'm excited about that. I'm not sure where we're going to be left. I, I, I taught abolition twice in both of my classes at the Kennedy School, and I was like very nervous about doing that, right? Because the Kennedy School is not the most radical place to teach, all right? That's not, <laughs> that's not a shock to anyone on this podcast. Um, and so I was very nervous to teach about abolition. And now seemingly everybody's not on the abolition, like, you know, like full on crusade, but a lot of people are thinking about abolition. A lot of people are thinking about what it means to defund or disinvest from policing. Um, so, and I say that to say that I'm not even sure what is possible in terms of American politics, in terms of black politics, in terms of social movements. But I'm really excited about the future and I'm excited about more people um, waking up and, to these issues that so many of us have been talking about and writing about for a long time. And I've been feeling like we've been like, at some point, at, su at certain times, like screaming into an empty room and that for me, and this is, I guess, the last thing I'll say to touch on another social media moment about like hashtag black in the ivory uh, tower, which is that I decided I wanted to write this dissertation about racial violence when I was a graduate student at Princeton. Um, and I was there from 2003 to 2008. And I cannot tell you how, how many times people told me that this was not a great project. And why was I focusing on this? Because the movement didn't succeed because there was still violence against black people that it wasn't worth writing about, that it didn't matter to American politics. And then like moving forwards about the numerous job talks and talks I've given about people asking about why is this political science to the moment that we are now when it's like, yes, we want to know more about Black political movements around racial violence. And I think it is so clear, right, that this is part of the making and the unmaking of American politics. So I just really excited about the next chapter. Thank you. That's a that's a wonderful note to end on. And uh, we know that you, there's been a lot of demands on your time um, recently and, and just in general. So we really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us um, and share your expertise with us. And yeah, so thanks, everyone. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.